G'day, and welcome to the Hunter's Campfire Podcast. My name's Mark, and along with good mate Ian, we're here to help with all things hunting. If you're looking to start but don't know where to begin, you want to make the most of your next trip away, or even plan a hunt of a lifetime, we've got something for you. You'll find our podcasts on Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon, and plenty of others. And if you want more, head over to our YouTube channel, The Hunter's Campfire, where we have plenty of how-to and hunting videos, along with the full video production of every podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe, and good hunting. Okay, well, uh, good evening, everybody. Uh, good evening, listeners. Welcome to another episode of The Hunter's Campfire Podcast. Um, tonight, uh, as uh, usual, Mark and I are here uh, hosting another episode. So, uh, good evening, Mark. How are you going? Very well, Mike. Very well. How are you? Oh, yep. Wonderful. It's been a busy week for you. Yeah, no, I try to avoid busyness, but it's just it's caught me this week. Yeah, I sometimes wonder um, what you do for your day job, or maybe you do it in the evening, but that's all right. We'll get into a little bit of that uh, a bit later on, Mark. Um, and uh, tonight we've got a guest with us, uh, Juan Peters, good friend of mine and someone who's had a lot of experience uh, around the world with his hunting. So uh, good evening, Juan. Thanks for joining us, mate. G'day, Mark and Ian. Uh, glad to be part of the show and looking forward to chatting with you guys and uh, passing on some of the stuff that I've done and uh, some of the stuff that I've learned and uh, my experience with you guys so far. Very awesome, cool. Mate. Yep, really looking forward to it. Should be a lot of fun. Look, before we get into that, though, um, just a couple of things we want to run through. Mark, talking about your busyness, you picked up a new rifle and um, in quick time, we were just talking about. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's a pretty common you know, conversation piece about how long it takes a PTA to, or a permit to acquire, to process. Um, I happened to, uh, well, based on a conversation we had a couple of podcasts ago about 22s, I thought I'd better buy one. So, because I don't own one. So I decided to buy one and I bought a, a little, lovely little lever, lever action 22 at Chiapa. And um, so I went in there and I think, the paperwork went in at about one o'clock on Friday afternoon from the, the shop that's on target with uh, Matt Joseph there. And um, they process it through the store. And amazingly, I got an email from Weapons Licensing Saturday saying it's been approved when I went Hold on it. the weekend. Yeah, I, I actually didn't really fully comprehend that email. I thought oh, I was just looking at the Monday email, but then I realised, hey, that came through on a Saturday. So I got an email on Saturday from them. And so on Monday, I got a text from the store when they were open. Hey, your PDA's here, all approved. Come and get your rifle. So, yeah, that's as quick as I, I don't know if I can get any quicker than that. But so that's gone through. So I Though I was talking to, you know, various people, it seems that there's no rhyme nor reason to it. You know, some people are 10 minutes, some people are 10 days, some people are 10 weeks. It's, uh, I don't know what it is, but I was very happy with that. So the next thing, obviously, is uh, start to um, side in this little lever action and uh, see how we go with it. So I'm very, full, I'm very much looking forward to that and uh, seeing what we can do with it. And this, uh, this little rifle's for your boys, or are you getting into the small game stuff a bit more? Well, you know, technically it can't be for my boys because they're not young enough, they're not old enough yet, and, you know, we don't do those kind of things. But when they get old enough, they may, you know, it may, with they proper licensing <laughs> and proper, you know, meeting all the requirements, oh, there's a 
probably have a good chance that it might go that way. Right. Which is okay. why I got which is why I got a lever action because they're both right-handed and I'm a lefty, so I thought about that for some time. You know, there's plenty of uh, junior or youth 22s out there, but I thought, no, don't get a um, one, don't get a, a, a youth gun because they're tall boys and they'll be they'll grow it real quick. And two, don't start with a bolt action because um, it'll you know it immediately kind of stop us from all using it together when legally allowed to. Hmm. Fair enough. So small gains on the menu, which is interesting because we've had we've had yeah. loads of conversations about um, small games, especially the guys over in the UK, mm. um, and it's it's really um, you know sparked my interest. And I, I'm now I spent part of my day today, funnily enough, um, researching how long to age hair or jackrabbit, <laughs> um, and um, whether it tastes any good and what process you go through, and uh, like. I've never eaten. I've eaten rabbit, uh, and you know that's quite nice. Um, but uh, I was really surprised to find out that in some parts of the world, some of the you know the the top star chefs, it is one of their signature dishes here. It is one of the most premium tasting meats that you can get. Um, they liken it to venison, but a lot uh, more delicate in its texture. Now, if you could tell me that you can get a slightly sweeter softer more pleasant version of venison i'd bloody hell the, the, the jackrabbits in my neighborhood gonna get a touch-up tell you because <laughs> that sounds pretty good and the the uh, medallions of meat that come off the side of each one there's a reasonable amount from milk yeah so, i mean hares aren't small animals i mean they're not they're obviously not you know large game but they're not that small you know they're you, in fact sometimes they 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 kind of surprise you how big they are so yeah um it, you, i would assume that a couple of pairs would uh would make a pretty good meal what do you reckon one you up for it yeah i'd eat it i reckon it'd go nice on a barbecue when they're marinated and yeah. butterfly open yeah these guys were talking about um um i don't know if the word basting is right but um taking the 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 back legs and bathing them in red wine and herbs for 10 days. Mm -hmm. well, this, is the, this, is the, this is the top guys doing this, obviously. And I'm sure there's some other magic tricks that they do to it, but it, it um, the juices that come out of the meat mixing with the wine turns it into quite a thick sauce, which they then use as, you know, the jus that goes over it later on. But it makes it super, super tender. Um, I'm keen. I'll let you know mm. how it goes. Yeah, in the UK, they what they call it, coursing. So basically, they chase them with um, dogs. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, that's what I sort of want to do with with Missy the indicator, is just get her to indicate them, not flush mm -hmm. them, but just indicate them. No, I actually chase them down. You know, the, the, the dogs. Oh, actually, yeah. yeah. They call it coursing, and they basically run them down. Yeah, well, the um, the uh, one of the videos that I saw today while I was working um, was uh, Gordon Ramsay chasing one down with a bald eagle. Or someone <laughs> with Gordon Ramsay, you know, catching it with a bald eagle rather than oh. shooting it. Um, and then he went through the process of cooking it, which was pretty cool. Anyway, my interest has um, been sparked. Anyway, we'll see how we go. Um, other thing I wanted to talk about was, especially for Queensland, is there was a new petition. So people will know, or would have been, I don't know how long ago would it have been, Mark, when they did the, the last really big petition for advocating for state forest hunting i kind of think it was pre-covid yeah i think it was too 
um, yeah. and pre, I don't know if it was before, uh, oh no, it went into Palaszczuk's government, so it was, could have been any, any time in the last few years, but there's another one that's gone out that uh, I sort of encourage everyone to get in behind, and yes, we know that people roll their eyes at the whole, you know, petition process, trying to, you know, get these things up, and they tend to ignore them, and, you know, you'll feel bad, but um, it keeps the conversation um, up there and people talking about it, and I think that's just as important. Uh, but this one is um, uh, getting people to sign a petition to allow Queensland local councils, the LGAs, to manage their own deer as a resource. Now, we'll get Reese to comment on this at some point. Reese came on earlier on. He he looks after that state or, or uh, public access for um, state forest group. Um, but my understanding is, um, as the landholders the local government authorities are allowed to give you permission to hunt on their public land, but generally for a specific purpose, like to knock back a herd of deer maybe that are running around a dam area or something like that. And that's been done before. I think this is to allow it to be more broadly available for hunters and um, the tourism that comes with it. So it becomes an income for that LGA. Well, not so much an income for the LGA, but um, a, a stimulus for the, the money that we all spend when we come into the areas, which we all know that we do when we go hunting in New South Wales. So it's an interesting one, Mark. What do you think? Yeah, look, I think um, I actually think it's it's it. I like it because it's thinking out of the box. So they're saying, you know, like it's it's too hard to convince a state government to make a decision that is across the state. But an LGA, you know, uh, and you would assume that an LGA especially in a in a regional area is going to have a lot of uh, either land under the LGA or they're going to have a lot more uh, a close relationship with private landowners within that LGA who have problems with pigs or deer or goat or something or whatever like that so you know you could see that someone who was um well and it might be seasonal so for instance in an LGA where they have a crop they might have a period of time each year where you know they have a real problem with, with um, uh, with feral animals because of the effect on cropping or something like that. So you can see that there's there's some logic in that approach, and and figuring out a way that that LGA can actually decide, okay, we'll open up the land that we have access to, and maybe um, bordering private land with supportive private landowners to hunting. Mm. And because they know that it'll bring an in income, um, I, I think it's actually quite, you know, quite a, a good idea. And, and as I said, it's, it's, I think it's thinking out of the box. Yeah, it's not, it's not something foreign to the area that I live. Um, some time ago, uh, the Australian Deer Association was able to help the council with some deer culling programs. Mm. Um, you know, it's some time ago, but it's happened. So. Yeah, look, hopefully this opens the door to another conversation. Um, what I could ask listeners to do is go and have a look at that petition. We, you know, we can't force anyone to sign it, but it's a good thing to be able to sign just to keep it up there, get the numbers there, show the government that there are a lot of voices in behind it. Um, and I think watch the space. There's some more ideas floating around at the moment that hopefully will have legs um, and it'll incorporate a lot more enthusiasts and hobbies, not just hunters, but all that use state forest and state land or would like to uh, because that will, will form a much bigger groundswell around the discussion and um, hopefully that'll help us out too but the fight continues mm. last one 
I had another listener, um, Frank again. He's um he's 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 been quite good at um, passing on some comments recently, and he uh, it was funny because he he reached out and said, look, I, I really want to get in, into um into this uh, state forest hunting that you're talking about, and um, I'm a an R licensed assessor for the game licensing unit down in uh, New South Wales, so I I do those for our branch and for various others that are looking for someone to do the assessment. Um, so he reached out and we were able to to run one of those courses for him. But in the process of that, um, he talked to me about uh, a feature that he found on the Garmin devices. Now, a few videos back, we talked about gear and I spoke about GPSs and why I chose the GPS that I chose. And I chose the Garmin Alpha 100 because I need a GPS that can track a dog because I hunt with an indicator. And one of the other GPSs that I was really interested in was the Rhino because it has the ability to track your buddy. Mm -hmm. Two rhinos together, it grabs the signal and you can do that. Now, I'm now informed that either via software update or just some sort of voodoo Garmin magic that's always been available, that's something I'll put the links to in this episode and probably on the Facebook page so people can find it. Um, but that's a feature that I didn't know about and that, that, that really plugs a lot of gaps for people. Does it allow you to do the text messaging? Because, I mean, does the Alpha have a text function? Uh, well, yeah, it has the ability to use a QWERTY keyboard. And, yeah, the part of the conversation with Frank was that you can send each other a message and you can, can show where you are on the map. Yeah. Bloody good. That's I unreal. didn't know that. So That's the only gonna... thing that the, the 100 won't have that I that I would like is that in the two-way yeah. ability. But, look, you can't have everything yet. So and when you can... Man, it'll be expensive, but that's all right. Because mm. I bought, we bought two of them. Me and a mate bought one each. We got them, we did them on a deal, but they weren't cheap. But no. we, you know, and we use, and we don't use them all the time. We use them for pretty specific like reasons and locations. But certainly, you know, the state forest hunt being able to go, okay, this is what's happening. That's a really good idea. Yeah, you're still going to need to be in some sort of range of the radio, but. Um, yeah, oh, and even the fact that you know you can go, okay, well, if they're over that side, we're over this side, and things like that, and understanding where people are, that's a, a very good idea. Hmm. So I'll test that out, I'll come back to you and let you know how it goes, but mm. um, yeah, he's, um, he's, he's come up with a good feature there, for sure. Uh, that's all I wanted to cover up front, so I want to have a, have a yonder one now, and, and um, all the, the awesome things that, that you've done over the last, well, probably about five years that I've known you. Um, so by way of intro, um, I met Juan when you moved to Toowoomba yeah. as part of a posting in the ADF yeah. and you were based out at Oki, I assume. That's correct, yeah. yeah how's my memory? And uh, I, I imagine now, and I thought we were special, you came and joined our branch of the ADA, but it probably turns out that every time you get reposted, you find the local club, you join mm -hmm. that club and you're part of about 40 clubs around the country, around the world, no doubt now. and. Uh, promising to return and you know and, and be one of the mainstays, but um, we uh, we met when you joined that joined that uh, the ADA branch in the Darling Downs. Yes. And, so, uh, yeah, fun, you're right. Kind of funny what you were saying about uh, the state hunting, state land hunting, um, because that's one of the reasons I joined uh, the Darling Downs branch. Because moving to Queensland and to Toowoomba, everything's all private land and yeah. you can't state forest. So I was like, well, I'm up here. I wanted to have an opportunity to hunt red deer. And um, that's why I joined. And we did. Yeah, and we did. Yep. 
So we had a, uh, a a good experience on one of the blocks that we had, where um, one was one of the new guys, and I was able to take him up onto one of these blocks, and he was able to track down and and take out a red deer, which was a hell of a fun experience for both of us. Um, yeah. It was it was a bit comical for quite a bit of it, but um, yeah, how'd you find that? Yeah, that was great to be able to see the deer on the ridge line and roar him in and get him to what like 20 yards, 20 30 yards and shoot him in the chest. It was pretty exciting. So yeah, that was good fun. So um so with that you you've um you you've done quite a bit in your life. You're obviously part of the ADF still and you're posting all over the place. So yeah. maybe just give us a background of of, of who you are and yeah. um what you're doing for work and then of course um how that translates into all of these opportunities you've had in your life for hunting. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So I'm a Melbourne boy, um and uh I'm a electrical engineer and uh I uh initially joined the army back in two thousand and five. Um, I was posted up to Darwin as uh, engineering officer, lieutenant, um, and uh, I was just young and immature at the time, so I left after two years and sort of chased my engineering career. And uh, during that time, I uh, moved back to Melbourne, back to home, and worked all over uh, Victoria uh, with a company called uh, Silca or Siemens and Tease, joint yeah. venture. Um, so that took me all over the place to, you know, Blue Scope Steel, NBN, Telstra, um, yeah, so sort of big contracting company doing all that sort of work um, as an engineer. And then uh, went over to New Caledonia and worked over there briefly for uh, two years in for Glencore and uh, Conneambo Nickel Mine, supporting a power station. And uh, had that opportunity over there. It was great to fish and hunt and with the locals and made some really lifelong friends. It was a great opportunity. But um, had to come home and uh, wanted to start a family. So came back to Australia and re-enlisted to the Army. And that's when I um, chose to go through an aviation stream and ended up in Oki, still electrical engineer, but on the aviation platform. Um, went up to Darwin following that posting in Oki to my first regimental posting up at One Avon in, uh, in Darwin, so on the um, ARH Tigers. So, um, but yeah, since then, um, I've just come back from an overseas uh, exchange posting to the United States with the 101st uh, Combat Aviation Brigade at Fort Campbell in Kentucky. Um, that was two and a half years over there, um, and then now I've got a, a posting back to Melbourne, which is fantastic because I've been away from my wife and kids for all up two and a half years. I got to see them in between, but uh, just to be home and be with family and be back in Melbourne and be able to hunt deer and all my friends, and it's fantastic. So um, I've been lucky, been able to travel around and hunt in different places like you know uh, New Caledonia, Darwin, America now. I've hunted briefly in New Zealand, so I've been. It's it's been a great opportunity. I made heaps of great friends. So yeah, that's a bit about you know my background. But um, yeah, this exchange opportunity in America was fantastic. It was a great opportunity, but it was tough because I I left in uh, 2019 in June, just before COVID, mm. and then COVID hit um, early 2020. Mm -hmm. um, I was able to get home just before they closed the borders to see my family. But then I was required to go back and deploy with the Americans to um, Germany as part of this uh, NATO deterrent force for the for the Russian, um, I guess, context that's over there with the Ukraine. Um, this was in 2020, so it did 12 months of deployment, or nine months of deployment, but 12 months away from the family. Um, and then, yeah, came back to America and finished off the rotation and then just came home. So, hmm. And uh, suffered your 
various different lockdowns. I mean, I remember one of the lockdowns you were in, I was in Samba country and I was stalking a deer and got you on video call. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had to do uh, hotel quarantine twice. Oh, God. In Sydney. Uh, it was good. Compared to being deployed, it was fantastic. So uh, <laughs> I, I didn't complain. The food was good. Got the internet. I had my own bathroom. Yeah. I had him. Um, I had I had one messaging me about all sorts of different things while he was bored in quarantine. And, yeah. uh, and one of the times, yeah, I was walking up a, a ridge in Victoria on one of our samba hunts. I thought, oh bugger it, I'll give him a ring. So I had him on video as her walking up through the bush to give him a taste of where we were. Um, it was a bit of a laugh. I managed to lose that deer not long after it. Imagine yeah, Ian, that. Does that. Ian does that when deer are around. He does funny things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll talk about funny things. Story other time. Uh, yeah, <laughs> for sure. But. Uh, so that's really good. So, so then, how did you how did you get into hunting? Like, was this was this part of your family, or, or yeah, where that come from? That's, that's a great question. So, um, when I was a kid, my uh, my godfather, my uncle, he had a farm out in uh, Meredith, which is between Ballarat and Geelong, middle of nowhere in Victoria. Um, little town that had fifteen acres out there, and he moved out there with uh, six of my cousins. And being an only child, my cousins were pretty close to me at that age. And uh, growing up, for every sort of big holiday, Christmas, Easter. You know, long weekends would be up at um, Uncle's farm, and um, he used to get out rabbit hunting and uh, fox hunting and duck shooting out there, and it'd be all the kids, and we'd used to do that, but I was only a kid, so just used to go along, you'd be, you'd be rover, go and fetch the, the rabbit or the duck after it was shot sort of thing, so didn't really shoot much at that age, but got exposed to it, and then I used to fish fish a lot with my, with my dad, uh, and then sort of when I turned, uh, I think while I was at university, I think I was at university at the time, my old man's like, you should get a should get a twenty two and go up and hunt on your uncle's farm and uh, chase some rabbits or, you know, do do some stuff out there. So I was like, oh, okay. And so I got a twenty two and never really went out hunting. Just used to go to Springvale Range and just plink targets and that. Didn't really know anyone to get out on some private property. And then um, a cousin of mine said, there's some guys at his work that go deer hunting on the hounds in Victoria. And I was like, oh, okay, that's different. He goes, you got to go do your hound test and that. But they're willing to take you out. Give this guy a call. So I gave this guy a call. His name was Kevin, or uh, Beefy, is his nickname. But um, yeah, he took me under his wing, and uh, I hunted with this crew for probably two years uh, before I joined the army. And they were awesome guys. And um, yeah, was able to get out and hunt with the dogs and really see some country out in uh, East Gippsland. So that's how I sort of started into it. And then obviously joined the army and uh, went up to Darwin and. Uh, yeah, all the boys there, like all maintenance workshop guys, they were hunting fish. And I had a few guys take me out barrel fishing and pig hunting and went out looking for buffalo, didn't get one. But they sort of wet the appetite like that. That's how I got into it. So mm. well, I um, didn't realize yeah. that you cut your teeth on hound hunting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's how it started. That's how I started um, on hound hunting. So I still enjoy getting out on the hounds. It's just, it's hard hunting. Uh, people say it's easy, but it's, it's very physical. Um, and you cover a lot of country, and the guys that hunt, they put in a lot of effort um, to cover country and, you know, look after their dogs, chase their dogs. And by the end of the weekend, you're shagged. So mm. it's tough. You probably um, don't see as many trophy deer, and there's a little bit of luck. And, again, you're talking about equipment again. A lot of the guys that hunt and are successful have some really good equipment, like with the tracking collars and radios and that. So they're able to get to the bail-ups. And oh, see. and, and I, I see when I look at them – they don't just have the gear; they they are bloody good at using it. 
Oh, like they know every feature of those things. Then they, yeah. they understand every little every little bit of it that they can squeeze out of the tech to, to give them that advantage. I've so seen since, how good they are. Since I've been in the army, I haven't been able to get out with the guys that I hound, hound hunt with, just because when you when you join a hound crew, there's kind of an expect expectation or commitment that you kind of hunt, you know, every two yeah. two weeks, two weekends a month at least. Um, and these guys that do it, they put a lot of effort in, so you can't just turn up willy nilly. So. I haven't had the opportunity to go out and hound hunt, and and now I just like doing things at my own pace a little bit, like walk around and enjoy the bush and sit and walk and explore. And if you're with the hound hunting crew, you kind of got to go where the crew takes you and chase the dog and yeah. shoot. Mm. Them. So it's it's different. It's different. There's a lot more a lot more camaraderie about it. Like around that the hunters campfire, like you there people sit around the campfire drinking a beer and talking, and you get together before and after a hunt. So there's a lot more of that social aspect as well with the hound hunting. So it's different. I certainly that that's something I really want to do. I want to have I, you know even if I don't shoot, I'd I'd like to I'd like to participate or at least you know get dragged along. Yeah. I, I think that that's really something I want to do. I mean, yeah, I'm going to chase buffalo. Yeah, I'm going to do this and yeah, I'm going to do that. But I'd really like I'd like to go on a hound hunt. I'd like to see that working dogs, that team, all that you know that that activity. I'd like to really get a first hand view of all that. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. It's an experience, I'll tell you, it's an experience. And when a hound is is voicing in a gully, the hair mm. stands up. No matter what anybody says, yeah. it's, it's incredible. It's incredible. Heart starts racing and it's it's pretty cool. Yeah. So, yeah, so yeah. It, it looks, it just looks like a, you know, it, look, it looks just such a communal activity. And I think that's what really, I, I think is what really applies, uh, appeals to me. The fact that, you know, it's literally this, for want of a better word, the tribe, you know, we're going to go get this thing, you know, and we're yeah. going out and, and it's coordinated. That, that, that's that's fantastic. fantastic. And that's that's the other thing, like after the hunt's over, like all the meat's shared and everybody's <laughs> celebrating, you know, everyone's like trophies that are shot and um, all the meat's divvied up, they make sausages and pies and it's it's very, as you said, communal. That's it. That's fantastic. Sounds, um not too dissimilar to what we've spoken about before, Mark, around um, going on your driven hunts. Mm. Where you've all got your posts, or I'm not sure what the terms were, but there's a crew of you that are working together to flush and, and shoot. Driven hunts are a little bit different because there's real segregation between the between the you know there's so the guys on the pegs who are the shooters don't you don't really interact with anyone other than other shooters. So you know you don't interact with the flushes or what they call the picker uppers, which is you know you don't interact with those. You know you kind of there is lots of crews and they're all servicing this one activity, but they're very separated. Whereas mm -hmm. what I get from hound hunting is like, nah, you, you know, you're here, you've got a job, get into it, do it. Because if you don't, you know, we all suffer type thing, you know, it, it seems much more uh, utilitarian and, you know, more communal to me rather than certainly driven hunts. Are, being on a driven hunt is, is, a, is an experience, but I wouldn't say... What and I don't know because I've been on a hound hunt. But what I see from a hound hunt, it's much more of a, as I said, a tribal activity, or or at least a, a I don't know what you call it, a crew, but it's more of an activity of people together. And they're and, all known to each other before. Yeah, the day. that's it. You know, the, and through you know, the season. Yeah. Look, when I went on the driven hunt, we had breakfast, but we didn't eat with the with we didn't eat with any. We only ate with you know the breakfast was around a big table with all the other shooters not with anyone else you know at the end of the at the afternoon drinks were with the shooters even the drinks during the day are with the shooters you, you didn't even even see the other 
the other people. And that's what really surprised me most about Driven Hunts was when the day was ending and we were all driving down, you know, these icy roads and land and Range Rovers, I got to see all the other people for the first time. And I went, holy moly, there's all these people who've been working all day so I can stand on a peg and shoot a, shoot a bird, you know. And it, it actually kind of, it. I have to admit, when it happened, it there was a kind of moment where I thought, oh, you know, there was in, there were, it didn't sit with me all that well, but, you know, custom is custom and, you know, people's, you know, cut people's customs are their customs. But, you know, like, for instance, you know, we were literally driving down this, you know, down the hill and Range Rovers and this um, farm, a tractor went past with like a, like a car, like a caravan on the back and they were all sitting in the, you know, the wagon. And that was all the people who had been chasing birds. They're getting driven around in the back of a tractor and a wagon and I'm getting driven down the hill in a Range Rover. So I kind of, yeah, I mean, like, you can't complain, but it, uh, it wasn't, it was a funny feeling. And that was a pretty, you know, local hunt. I mean, I, I did go on a farm hunt, which, which again, which was where you actually did your own drive, you know, beating the birds. That was that was more communal. That was a much more communal because you actually participated in that and mm. people had their own dogs and they were flushing, which probably is more akin to the, to the hound hunting. You know, it was more, there wasn't a whole group of other people servicing what you were doing. So, that's yeah, good. That, yeah, that's why I'm I'm really keen to. I I, I think it, there's a you know I, I really want to see that and experience that. I've, certainly something that I'm interested in. You know, it sounds like that uh, the only people that are, are usually lucky enough to experience it are the committed ones that form part of the crew. Like you're saying, there's probably not too many spaces available for the casual hanger on or are they other than maybe an observer? But um, it, depends. it depends. Some crews are pretty good. Like they they want to they want to share. Yeah. Um, so some of the guys that I hunt with, they're, they're pretty open to having people come and um, you know experience it. Uh, but they're very close. They're very tight knit group. So yeah, yeah. would be. You know, you don't want to be. You know, you're gonna run around and scrub with twelve other people with you know someone's armed and there's dogs and yeah, you don't. It's not yeah. like oh let's just, let's find twelve bikes and off we go. You know, there's there I can well imagine there's a hell of, a hell of a level level of trust. And, you know, to work, to make that work. Imagine being the bloke that missed. Oh, mate, I've been there. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine it. Oh, you'd, you'd feel yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so bad for the group, wouldn't you? Um, so you, so you, left, um, you left there, you went up to Darwin, um, chased yeah, some, some stuff in the NC, didn't get onto Buff. No, had so a in, go? Darwin, in Darwin, I had a very close, uh, uh, I call him a close friend now, but at the time he, was, he used to work with me. Um, he was a fitter armorer and uh, he knew that I liked to fish and hunt and uh, he took me out pig hunting out into East Arnhem Land and, um, and buffalo hunting and we went looking for buffalo, we didn't find any but we shot some big pigs so um, it was a fantastic opportunity, he was, he's a really good hunter, he's I think originally from Queensland and he's still up in the territory so um, I still keep in touch with him and eventually went back and shot a buff with him and um, he's, okay. he's a really great guy so um, but he's a hard hunter again and um, hunts really. He, he can sniff a pig out. He's that good. Like he's, he'll 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 walk up on a pig that's sleeping in an old uh, in an old uh, um, fallen tree uh, root. Um, so yeah, he's he's fantastic. But um, yeah, so he took me under his wing a little bit and took me out pig hunting and 
show me the NT Bush because NT Bush can be pretty unforgiving. Uh, Ian's been up there; he's experienced it. It's pretty hot and brutal. Sent, sent me home. Yep. Yeah, it's tough. So um, yeah, so so I hunted some pigs up there, never got the buff, but did some fishing again, uh, and then yeah, left and worked all over the place. But um, how yeah. did how did you go? Um, so you went up there to work, but you said you went back and and shot a buff, or your mate did, but you were yeah. with him. Was that just a trip back to hunt, or were you going back there for work? No, so I, I went back. So when I was in New Caledonia, um, working as an expat, I was earning quite well. Didn't have any kids. Newly married, I had a little bit more sway with the wife, so yeah. <laughs> I flew back from New Caledonia to Darwin to hunt a buffalo. So uh, my my question was going to be about a, um, a acclimatization, um, but coming from New Cal across to Darwin probably wasn't too bad. I was still bad, but because I think we were hunting in November, it was pretty warm. It was in the build up, so it was hot. Yeah, yeah. very. How, how did you tackle that? You know, we've we've spoken to um, to Brian about that, and and obviously people that go up that way, especially in November, far out. Um, I, I'd been up there before, so because I'd worked there, and I was mentally prepared for what it was. Um, and I, the biggest thing with that place is you just got to keep hydrated. And you, you got to carry a lot of water. Right? You got to carry a lot of water, and you got to you got to you got to hydrate yourself with um, with a hydrolyte or some sort of magnesium powder or something like that, just to keep yourself in good nick. So. Um, and you got to you got to know the warning signs, and you got to be able to address it before it hits you. Mm. Um, so that's yeah. how I handled it. But yeah, it's never it's never pleasant when you're hunting in like those conditions, especially if you're not in it for an extended period of time. Yeah, I remember we were fishing the Gulf. We went up, so we towed the boat up to the Gulf Country, and fished for eleven days. And it was just before the end of the barra season on the on the west coast because it ends a couple of weeks earlier on the West Coast before the East Coast. So the idea was to fish just up to the end of the season and then head home. And it was a bit blowy. So it was, you know, it was hot, but it was blowy. You know, it was, you know, it was okay. So, you know, you were full covered, but every day you're out in a the boat, there was a breeze on you. So, you know, it wasn't too bad. And one day we went up this creek system and it was pretty shallow and, and also pretty skinny and some water. And there was a couple of times crocs got a little bit too close, for my comfort anyway. But um, um, we went up this creek system and it turned so we we're out of the wind. And then you went, oh, okay, this is what it's like out of the wind here. You know, it's just like, oh, you know, it's like we just drove the boat into an oven. <laughs> I went, wow, that's, that's just, it's that's just hot, man. That's bang on top of your heat. It was just like, humidity. Humidity is just. Mm, I just felt cool. where with that when that wind disappeared, just went holy moly. That's what it's like. And no wonder people, you know, basically, you know, don't last too long if they're not prepared. Mm. So Ooh. tell us, tell us about Newcal. Yes, yeah, because so I, um, that's somewhere that we've talked about going um, over the last few years. Uh, yeah. I haven't quite made it over there with you, but t tell us what that's like. What's that all about? So um, New Caledonia. So I was working for for uh, Silkar Siemens and Tease, and this um, opportunity came up so to work over in New Caledonia. And I had I was in a happy job with them at the time, and it was with the same company. It was just with a different department. So I was in the NBN side of the business, and then this was with the power and power and industry side of the business. It's just a different um, department. This opportunity came up to work overseas as an expat, and I was like, 
I'd left the army at the time, missed all the deployments to Afghanistan, and I was like, this is a great opportunity to go and work overseas um, and train a local workforce and interact with um, uh, different different people, different country, different culture. And I was like, I want to do this. So uh, I applied internally and I got offered the position. Um, the only caveat was I had to take my wife with me. They didn't want me to go on my own, which, which, was, which was great because we both wanted to go. Um, so, yeah, so that's how that opportunity came up. I was working for um, Glencore. It was called Extrata at the time. I think Glencore bought them. And uh, Glencore and uh, Connie Ambo Nickel, which is half the country, half of the New Caledonian government, 51%, and then 49% is owned by Glencore. It's like another joint venture. And they had a power station there, Nickel Mine, big Nickel Mine. Um, and it was a multinational plant. Like they had, uh, I think it was designed by Australians, uh, French and Australians. And um, the equipment was from China and, and India. And they had Filipinos and Koreans assembling it and Australians maintaining it, the power station. So I was mm -hmm. part of the Australian crew um, doing the, the maintenance and um, asset management of the, of, the, of the power station only. Um, similar to what we used to do out here in the Trobe Valley at the two power stations. So um, we had some experience, the company had some experience out there doing it and we brought that over to New Caledonia. Mm -hmm. so, um, that was a great opportunity. So I went over there. It's about 51 Australian expats, 50 odd, right? And um, I chose to live in the far north, away from the rest of the expats, because I I'd met one of the workers prior to moving there, and uh, I knew that she and her family liked liked to hunt, and we got along. And yeah, so um, I chose to live up there, and we hit it off. And on the weekends, when all the Aussies used to get together, I used to go out and fish and hunt. So. It's fantastic. It's Rusa, isn't it? Sorry, yeah, Rusa. Yeah, yeah. Rusa. Yeah, yeah Rusa. So, um, so the, the the tricky thing about New Caledonia is again, it's a lot of private land. You can't just go and hunt. It's either tribal yeah. land or private. Um, but I was very lucky and fortunate that I'd met someone that was so kind and willing to let me hunt on their property and their land because the deer are part of their part of their staple diet. That's part of their food. So, um, they don't shoot trophy. Rusa. They shoot deer when they're in velvet to eat. So, oh, okay. Yeah, so I was lucky. I, I was allowed to, to hunt and um, I met some really nice people there. Another, another guy who took me on numerous occasions out to hunt and just missing shots and long shots. and Because we used to hound hunting. Like I hadn't done a lot of stalking prior to this. And um, just taking long shots. Like most of the hunting you're doing for sambas and thick sort of scrub, you're, you're shooting maybe 200, 200 yards. You know, that's Mac. Mac, unless you're set up for long range hunting, which I mm. wasn't at the time. I hadn't done a lot of it. Um, so, yeah, taking some long shots for, like, you want to shoot a big rooster, you shoot like one ridge to the next, you know. Like, Five, um, 600 meter stuff. Yeah, and I just, had, I just hadn't had a lot of experience with that. And I didn't have the equipment for it, set up for it. So, um, yeah, so I, I was lucky enough to shoot some nice rooster there. And I had some friends come over. Um, I took um, two guys, two groups of people over. Some of the hand, my hand hunting friends came over and shot, uh, father and son came and shot um, two rooster and took them home. And um, I had one of the guys who was teaching me how to stalk come over and shoot one. And I, I'm planning to take Ian at some point. And I've got my friend um, up in the Northern Territory due to take as well. So, um, but yeah, pretty much now if I go back there, I don't want to hunt. I just want to see my friends. I spent two years there and made some really close friends. Because being quite isolated, you spend a lot of quality time with people. Mm. Uh, and I learned to speak a little bit of French, so um, it's been great. I haven't seen these people since uh, 20, 
14. So it's been some time. So I'm looking forward to getting back there. And mm-hmm. and what's the climate like where you were uh, hunting? So it's, it's typically like uh, North Queensland. It's no, nowhere near as hot as Darwin at all. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's nice. I'd say it's nice. They do get a they do get a bit of a uh, a wet season, a, a bit of a build up, but it's not nothing like Darwin. Mm. So uh, yeah, it's nice. I'd say it'd be like I guess Townsville weather because it's on the same sort of uh, latitude as that. So yeah, oh, I'll look forward to that day. It'll happen at some point. I'll save my rooster chasing for Newcastle. And I and I and I tell you what, mate, it's like two hours, two or three hour flight from Brizzy and Melbourne, Sydney. It's yeah. Close. Yep. But I think now with this COVID, uh, we just got to wait till everything sort of settles down. Yeah. Oh, you don't you don't want to be the people bringing that over there. Um, yeah, it's, it's this this thing is a pain in the neck. Um, we won't we won't dwell on it anymore. Um, but that's great. So so Newcal was a fantastic. Newcal was a great opportunity, man. And I've had a few of the guys from New Caledonia. They came out and hunt samba, and all of them uh, shot a deer. We took them out surf fishing down Gippsland coast and. Had a ball, so and a couple of the guys have come up Northern Territory and shot buffalo with me as well. So, um, oh, wow. So yeah, so we've 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 done some stuff. So, and I guess this is what we talk about. Like you talk about um, free hunting in state parks. Like all the hunting that we've done is with friends, um, and you just hunt. I you, I go with you, and you go with me. There's no paying any money or owing anyone anything. It's just you do stuff with friends, you know, mm. which is great. It's an important part. Yeah. So. I've been watching, like I watch a lot of, you know, YouTube. So, Kentucky, that's that's whitetail, isn't it? Yeah, it's whitetail country. So, mm. so initially when I went over there, I did some training. The training is set up at Fort Rucker, which is their home of aviation, similar to like uh, Oki and Toowoomba. Um, so I went there first, and there was six months of training uh, where you do some courses to prepare you to go to Fort Campbell. So, um, I did the courses down there. While I was there, they're right into their bass fishing, so I was doing that mm. and turkey hunting and and mm. whitetail. Yeah. Um, and I, one of the instructors on the course, um, you know, you introduce yourself. I said, oh, I like fishing and hunting. If anybody gets out, let me know. I'd like to come. And he came up and saw me after the class and he said, hey, um, anytime I'm going fishing, I'm willing to take you out. And if you want to hunt, my father's got a farm in Georgia and uh, I'll be going to hunt there. I'll take you anytime you want to go. I was like, sweet, let's do it. <laughs> awesome. So. It goes uh, to show, though. I mean, America is probably a little bit different because their culture is completely different to to ours. But yeah, yeah. even in our own workplaces here, um, and customers you talk to, and people you interact with, and your daily lives, if you don't put yourself out there, you never know whether their family's got an opportunity yeah. for yeah. you. Or yeah, most definitely, most definitely. You won't believe this is an hour south of a massive city in Georgia, Atlanta. So Atlanta's a massive city in America. It's an hour south. In the suburbs, you had 200 acres uh, of a farm. The rest of the area was being developed into, you know, neighbourhoods and whatever. But he had this 200 acres of uh, bush and pasture mixed in with all the communities. And uh, this was his father and father's farm. Um, and yeah, we used to drive up every weekend. It was a five-hour drive up there, um, but we'd share the fuel and hang out and spend time because I wasn't there with my wife either. And his missus was working away as well, so. It was perfect, mate. So we'd go up there, we'd set up tree stands, uh, we'd cut shooting lanes, we'd get set up. We hunted the bow season and then we hunted the rifle season. And it was my first time uh, hunting with a bow. So yeah, got, I, I didn't think you'd pick the bow up before you left, had you? No, nah, I hadn't. So this is the first time I, I played with a bow. Um, so he um, he sold me his uh, used uh, white compound um, bow. Um, 
taught me how to use it. Everyone was really welcoming. Like, there's a bow range there. The guys were showing me how to set it up, tuning my bow, and, yeah. So it was awesome. So I really got into that. And, yeah, hunted this property in Georgia. I hunted all uh, archery season. Didn't get an opportunity for a shot. The last day of archery season, fired over a doe, ran off, and then fired under the doe, and another doe ran off. And I was like, this is insane. So, <laughs> uh, so yeah, so... I said, well, wait for rifle season. So rifle season came around. Um, first day of rifle season, torrential rain, pouring. Went out that night, didn't see anything. The next morning, pouring again. I thought, you know what, I'm just still going to go. So I went out, the rain stopped, climbed up in my tree stand. And no joke, these deer are smart because they're living around the suburbs and they get hunted hard. Mm. So I saw this buck run out. He's probably... I don't know, 200 yards away, but I couldn't take a shot. It's on my right-hand side, and the tree stand was that narrow that I couldn't turn my body. So he's turned and looked at me in the stand and took off in the bush. And I was like, bastard, how did you even know it's there? But the deer just know where the stands are. They're not stupid. And they, mm. these, these farms are being hunted regularly. They know where, where to avoid. So anyway, come come about 11 o'clock, I come down the tree stand. I come down real quiet. It was wet. It was quiet. And I thought, you know what? I'm not going to walk back to the house. I'm going to go stalk this property and see if I can find this buck, right? And I didn't get a look at his antlers or anything like that. I started walking. It was real slow. I walked into where he ran and I looked and I couldn't see. It was pretty thick. And then I started walking back to the house and I thought, you idiot, why don't you just take your time and have a look around properly? You know, you never know where this thing could be, right? I would have turned and probably walked 20 metres and I saw his antlers. He was sleeping. And uh, he was sleeping in some uh, some briars and I saw him just moving his head and I was like, what? I couldn't believe it. I thought I was seeing things, and I pulled the scope up, and I saw him sleeping. And then everybody's told me you never shoot a deer when it's bedded because you can't see its vitals. So I was like, well, "You got to stop and have a cup of tea." What what am I what am I going to do here, right? So I would have probably taken another five steps, and then he's got up to stretch. I thought he might have heard me, but he was stretching. And then I sent it the seven mil and uh, hit him, and he dropped there on the spot. And when I walked up to him, he was a beautiful shape, ten point. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a beautiful white tail, and uh, everybody told me I was very lucky to shoot a 10 point as a first white tail. And for a Georgia deer, he's quite quite tall, it's very symmetrical. And I was very lucky to, to shoot him. And then, yeah, I was going to cut him up, and the guy goes, Mate, you just drop the guts, we take it to the processor, they do everything for you. Mm, yeah, yeah. processors over there, you take the deer there, and you just tell them what cuts you want, and they do everything. They skin it, they call the taxidermist, he comes and takes the head, and Bob's your uncle. It's fantastic. Can, uh, is is it true that that can happen now in Victoria? You can take your animal to a butcher in Victoria. Is that not, not that I know? Of. I, I think you can now. Not not everyone, but I think there is. I think a, a butcher. Uh, this is all my thinking, so it could be all wrong. But I I, I thought that a butcher could nominate as someone who would process game meat if you know for you. Yeah. So it's not like everyone, but I think they can, yeah. I'm, I'm sure they allowed it. Um, they were allowed to process it for you, but they couldn't take it and process it to be sold or given. That's right, yeah. You know, you're basically, um, you're paying them to process for you, yeah. Yeah, whereas yes. in Queensland, um, the general can't rule is it's got to go to an abattoir to be killed or yeah. it's got to be killed by a proper game butcher, yeah, that's right. um, which is a, which is a shame. New Zealand's similar. You can, you can take it to a... To a butcher, and uh, it can be uh, donated as well. Mm. 
um, yep. you know, it can go to food banks and things like that, which is a really good initiative that I saw that they brought out. So, yeah. Um, so, so, so that was Whitetail, and you that that was your first foray into it. And then what happened was I had to move to Fort Campbell, which is in uh, in Kentucky. So, so before, in just before you go into all of that, yeah. how many places did you hunt? I just want to get a feeling for yeah. time. All right. So I hunted. I hunted Alabama. On the, Georgia, on the then Alabama. Yeah. Georgia and Alabama, and then I hunted uh, Tennessee and Kentucky. Yeah. That was where I was living majority majority of the time. Then I uh, had a little hunt in Germany while I was deployed. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And then I hunted in um, in Colorado for elk, yep. and then I went in went into Idaho looking for a mule deer. Okay. Uh, They've had a fair run at it over a year a year and a half. Yeah, two and a, two years, two and a half years. Two and a half years, yeah. So Including got, your posting to was it Oberammergau you went? No, it wasn't. It wasn't Oberammergau in Germany. It was another UN spot. No, the Germany one. The Germany one's a tricky one. It's called Operation Atlantic Resolve, so it's not like combat deployment. It was you're just there as a deterrent force for, for the Russian for the Russian aggression. Um, yeah, yeah. However, now you can see it's actually a real thing. So yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, let's rewind and go back to uh, hunt number two. So Whitetail. So second so, so finished the white hunt in uh, in Georgia and then moved up to uh, Kentucky and Tennessee so I lived in Tennessee and the base is on Kentucky which is awesome so you can hunt both states you don't have to pay out of state license and all that which is your primary place of work is in Kentucky which is great for me so um, I was lucky because I could have hunted on post in Kentucky and could have hunted in my home state which was Tennessee at the time so um, that was fantastic so in Tennessee, um, I was introduced to uh, one of the a really nice guy there who we looked after all the contractors, all the defence contractors that do maintenance on air, aircraft, and um, he took me under his wing. He was a big turkey hunter, and uh, um, he said that he would uh, take me turkey hunting because that was the next first season that was going to come around. I was like, awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but then he had to, um, he he wasn't able to take me take me, so he introduced me to his friend, and this guy was like a turkey whisperer, and he's a very close friend of mine now. Uh, another guy called Kevin, and he um, he took me out turkey hunting consistently. And I'm telling you what, mate, it is an art form, and mm. it's one of the most frustrating hunting uh, styles that I've ever participated in. Just the level of uh, concentration and patience required to shoot these stupid birds. Um, but I tell you what, it's exciting. It's very exciting. Uh, a lot of sitting and waiting, a lot of calling, and it's a real art form. So. Um, yeah. Yeah, I missed – I had two birds, like, just didn't appear in the right place. And on the very last day, we called a bird in from over 300 yards away and I stuffed the shot up. I ballsed it up. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I don't talk about the turkey hunt much. I never got one. I wanted one and never never, never succeeded there. But they're definitely a little, little fire. So similar to tar hunting, it's just hard. Well, the good thing about tar hunting is you can go and shoot turkeys in the same country. Because yeah. they've got them running around all over the place in New Zealand now as well. Yeah. Do they? The, the, yeah. The yeah. Yeah, but I think that they hunt them a little bit differently in New Zealand than they do in the US. <laughs> I'd say so. And it's uh, so strictly With their bull bars. Yeah, yeah, they whack them on the head with a stick. <laughs> so I've seen this guy literally walk along and whack them on the head with a stick. They, that Watching, I, I love watching. Me and my boy, we watch turkey hunting all the time. I just yeah, love it. Oh, I just love it. Wife's looking at me going, what are you doing? And I'm just, I'm just, you know, it's 25 minutes. Is it? 
Here it comes. Don't move. It's a, it's a head appears, you know? Yeah, yeah. And they can see you from a mile away. Oh, yeah. That's what must be. They must have remarkable eyesight because you'll see these guys go, this one come. And they'll just stop. And, you know, they'll have, and they're full camoed up and they got the mask on. And they don't even want to move their, you know, or, uh, 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 boom. It's, I just love it. I just I love it. I yeah, just love so, watching, you know, that little, you know, the, the little, um, it's a pot, a little pot, yeah. Yeah, they, well, they, they seem to have three kinds. They've got the pot, and they've yeah. got this one mouth, little, mouth little, ball. little, very small, um, to read, uh, a little mouth, yeah, ball. yeah, a little mouth read. And then I've seen this guy's got like, um, it's a wooden the, box, yeah, that's it, yeah, it's almost like a, like a harmonica, it's this wooden box, yeah. And I should have got my, my props that I haven't turned up yet, they're all coming. Oh, I love watching. I love watching Turkey. And yeah, uh, there's a really good um, YouTube channel called The Hunting Public, and they're young guys, and they they do. And so, and the way they do it, I what I really like about them is they actually have guy on the camera and one hunting, so you get oh, much yeah. better. You yeah. see it, you know. And, and oh. <laughs> oh, that's too many. <laughs> Just at the. The, uh, yeah, it's it looks like art. It's fun. It's fun, it but it's frustrating. Oh, yeah. like, it's just oh, I bet you would be. A lot of disappointment. But um, so, yeah, so I did that. And then uh, deer season, unfortunately, I missed. I was deployed. So I missed that first deer season. Um, and I went to Germany. And in Germany, one of the um, engineers over there, civilian engineers, he used to hunt ducks and roe deer over there. So he took mm. me a few times just to show me some places and stuff. And before we were locked down, before the – before the base went into hard lockdown for COVID. So um, I was lucky to do that. But, um, but yeah, came back to, to Tennessee and then sort of got into the bow hunting space because um, the guy who took me turkey hunting, turkey hunting primarily hunts with um, vintage recurve bows. Um, so he set me up with a uh, Fred Baird uh, 1969 uh, Tiger Cat vintage recurve bow. And... Um, yeah, so we were playing with that, and I kind of got pretty accurate and competent with it. Um, and, yeah, the whole point was to try and shoot a whitetail with this boat. So we were getting set up, shooting lanes again, setting up stands, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, but yeah, and then sort of while that was going on, a couple of my army mates were trying to – were keen to plan a hunt over west in some of the big country and chase a mule deer. Mm-hmm. So a couple of pilots um, that I'd met through these courses and – have become really good friends of mine. Uh, kindly enough, offered to to do a hunt over in Idaho to um, chase some mule deer. So, planned that. We drove from Tennessee to Idaho, which is a massive drive. How and, how uh, far is that, mate? Oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to tell you the mileage, but um, it's it's across about four or five states at least. Um, so, drove across there, and uh, we did five days backcountry hunting. So, with a backpack. Nice. Uh, we one of the boys pulled a trailer and parked it on the low country. So we had a, a caravan set up there for a hot shower and a meal in case the weather turned bad. And then we drove to the trailhead and we just walked in. Um, and we would have walked from, I think we drove into about 6,000 feet elevation and then had to walk to 8,000 feet plus elevation. And I was shattered. I was shagged. And it was cold and miserable. And um, when we got there, got into position and we had elk bugling, just going off there. Mm. Like six-point elk, massive bull, and two other junior bulls 
or, or younger bulls, but we didn't have elk tags. We had milk. No milk. tags. Yeah. So we just sit there and took video and. Why what? didn't you take? Why didn't you have a tag? That's that's something you can't buy off the shelf. You off can't the can, over the counter. We could have bought a tag, but we focused on mildew. We thought, well, we'll go mildew hunting. Yeah. Well, and and so so tell me, what would the elk tag cost? Uh, I think the elk tag is about eight hundred bucks. Right. So it's not something you just uh, was chuck one of these in just no. in case. What about and, the white tail that you took? What was its tag worth? Uh, the mule deer was, I think, five hundred bucks. For and the uh, the white tail from um, no back? no tags in uh, no tags for white tail. No, you're, oh. just, you're allowed to shoot two bucks, two and a oh, buck. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so you had a five hundred dollar tag, and and putting an eight hundred dollar one in your pocket just in case. Is, yeah. So you have to buy a license a and a tag. So all up, to all up to hunt. It's whatever species you decide to hunt. If you're an out of state, you're looking at about a thousand bucks. That's right. Yeah. Because okay. that's it. That, that's the out of state price. So. If you're a lot, I don't know, hundred bucks, fifty bucks. It's ridiculous. That's why in yeah. in in the south, Aaron, you could when you were hunting in, well, you said Kentucky and Tennessee, you were classed yeah. as a local, so you, there, a local, was, there was no, that's no right, fee. You, no fee. You just yeah, yeah it's you just had to put, you just had to clip them to say you got them. Correct. That's right. So so we I can't remember, Ryan. I can't remember which state it was, but I was listening to something and they said and um and because they were trying to cull back some of the predators, um for an extra ten bucks. Yeah, you, could did, get a, so. you could get a black bear and a wolf. That's, mm. so that's what we did. So I had wolf tags. For, I had wolf tags for 30 bucks. Yeah. And uh, all of us had a wolf tag and all of us had a mule deer tag. Yeah. And no joke, the first night we, after I walk in, as soon as it hit dark, we had wolves howling and circling the tent. I was shitting myself. Oh, I bet. And it was just on dark. The guys were laughing at me, as, as they do. But anyway, um, I slept with a pistol on my chest. <laughs> um in hindsight, we probably should have gone out and shot one of the wolves in the spotlight. But I didn't know you couldn't use a spotlight at the time. And the boys didn't want to move either. So I guess they must have been scared too. Uh, anyway, got up the next morning. We see the wolf tracks and that around the, around the tent. And um, we went out and tried to hunt. And we didn't see any of those elk. We didn't see any mule deer for two days. We walked. And we covered sure, some We didn't see anything. Um, little did I know there's an actual wolf problem in Idaho. So now... They've opened it up. You can kill cubs. You can kill, uh, oh, sorry, pups. I should say pups. And there's unlimited. There's unlimited amount that you can shoot now because uh, there's a problem with the wolves. Yeah. So we hunted there for about four days, and then the snow came in like heavy, and uh, the guys that I was with were like, "You need to. We need to make a decision. Either we we move out of here, or we stay here and we ride the storm out. But we might not be able to get the car out of here, and we all have to go back to work. So." We're like, okay, let's get out of here. So we walked down out of this high country, down and hunted the, I think it's called um, uh, Sawbrush Country or, or um, yeah, I think that's what it's called, down in the lower flats area. So we went down into the lower country and uh, tried to chase our luck there. But out there, all we saw were does, no bucks. Hmm. It, it just gets hammered. So, um, and that, that lower country is more accessible. There's more roads, mm. open, um, you know, so, and, We'd missed the opening because we were up in the high country, so I don't know how shot up it was. So we didn't see, we didn't see any, I didn't see a single mule deer buck for five days. Saw a lot of bear sign in the low country. I think it's better than missing it though, isn't it? Yeah, saw a lot of wolf sign up in the high country um, and saw a nice, really, really big elk, which was awesome to see. Yeah, that's unreal. Yeah. I was watching um, Mediator when he was hunting, he's actually hunting elk in um, Kentucky as part of the, Rocky Mountain, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and there he's hunting them in the in that Kentucky wood, which is you know probably a lot. That kind of country is Stick. is probably more familiar to a lot of us because you know it was, yeah. it was heavy 
timbered country. Yeah. Must but, be um, Yeah, sorry. So after that, I went back to Kentucky and uh, I had a Colorado elk hunt plan. That was a paid hunt, but it's not a guided hunt. So it's, you kind of pay to have the opportunity to hunt on a private ranch. Oh, yeah. Um, and there's sort of like a, um, a group of guys that run the run the hunt and um, you pay, I think, you pay a fee to have access to the to the ranch um, and you, you buy your own tag and you guide yourself out there. That's it. And there's 10 hunters out there and I think it was uh, 75,000 75, acres, 7,500 acres, I think. So it was big. It was a big property. Um, and you got multiple ridgelines and elk and bear and so i had a bear and elk tag there and uh unfortunately there wasn't any snow so the elk this is what they told me the elk hadn't moved down off their, mm. their summer range down into this area so um didn't see a decent bull elk on the property that i was uh, but did see a huge herd of over 100 elk in a neighboring property which we didn't have access to mm. so how how did um how did your world change both in this hunt and the previous one when you were no longer the you were no longer the just the hunter you were also the guy with wolves and bears around you yeah, I so, think about how this would change yeah so initially the first hunt in Idaho I was very nervous so those wolves around the tent really really put the GBs up me like I was I was nervous at night as well so the next morning like we were out there and it was heavy snow and we had fresh wolf tracks running up the tracks that we were at like literally would have been an hour before we were walking down this track so they were around they knew we were there um i don't know if they were hunting us or they were just keen to see interested to see if we we're hanging meat because they're not stupid they know if you're hunting so um i was very nervous the bear as such oh, the guys were carrying one of the guys was carrying bear spray and uh one of the guys gave me his pistol to carry because I was nervous. So I had the pistol. Um, but really, at the end of the day, like, the bear's going to hammer you. It's going to hammer you. Um, you're not really going to – you're not going to have much of a chance if that thing's charging at you. Because the scrub you're walking is over your head. Like, we're walking through yeah. buckbrush that you can't see. In. Like, there's a little track, but you're covered in trees. If this thing's in there, it's just going to maul you. So I was nervous on the first time. On the second hunt, I wasn't as nervous because I'd obviously done that first hunt, so just experience and exposure. And um, I knew what I was looking for, for the for the bear sign. Like I knew what the bear shit looked like. I knew what marks to look for. And I kind of knew where they were. Um, this, the property in Colorado had a lot more bears than it did any wolves, but um, I don't have more wolves. So we saw, I saw heaps of bear sign in Colorado, like trees that were raked and bear shit and like, it's 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 nerve wracking, but the best. Oh, it, it must be. and, and yet people will get used to it. I, I understand that. I, I, I was reading something the other day about um, um, the top ten most deadly states um, due to death by animals, and like there's some significant numbers in some of these states. Yeah. You know, upwards of five and six hundred people a year are getting killed by animals. Mm. Now I don't. I don't know why they died, you know, whether they fell off a horse or whether they got trampled by, you know, a herd of something while I was mustering. Mm -hmm. It didn't go into the detail, but five and six hundred people dying in the wilderness due to wild animals. Um, your brain automatically tells you that I've just had my my, you know, my skull caved in and, you know, parts mm -hmm. of me chewed off while I was screaming. Um, 
even sitting down and having a brew is it's not going to be a uh, rest, is it? You're going to uh, be you got to be on your guard. Like we were always watching. So part of the way I hunt too. I don't typically like hunting alone. Like I think it's it's always good to hunt with someone, even if you're not in the same gully, but you you you're in the vicinity of each mm. other. Something does happen. You've got some sort of support or assistance. But one of the guys shot an elk and um, I shot a cow elk, and uh, he thought it was dead, and then it started moving. So he put another bullet in it. But then when he went over there, he saw the bear marks on it, drag marks on it. So the bear was on it like within minutes. Wow. So they're there. Um, I, didn't yeah. see, I didn't see any bear during the day, but we did see a massive black bear at night. So, um, But, yeah, you can't shoot at night. So <laughs> um, so I did have a bear tag. I was keen to tag it because there was a lot of bear sign. But um, I didn't I didn't think there were any grizzlies there. I think that the, the stakes would rise if um, if there were grizzlies in the area. But most of the bears that are around are black bears. Yeah, they're known to, to sort of take off a bit more, and they? they're yeah. not as aggressive. Yeah. Still um, adds another dimension to to the hunt, which, look, I'm really keen to experience. Yeah, but American, um, I'm telling you, it's just, it's such a great opportunity to hunt. I think, like, for me, like New Zealand, I've only been there once, and I think it's just such a paradise, so close, that's so opening and welcoming to hunters and got such opportunities. I definitely want to do that in the future. And now that I've been to America and met some really nice people in Texas and uh, Tennessee, Kentucky, and now uh, Colorado and Idaho. Uh, I mean, it's not that hard. You just need to save your pennies, plan it, and go and do it. Mm. I mean, it's expensive, I guess, for the flight. You got to fly over there, and then allow yourself at least another thousand, two thousand bucks for your tags and food and whatever. But you're looking at about five grand. You can get over there and do it. Yeah. 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 The trophy thing would be hard. Like I was planning, what am I going to do if I did shoot something? Because you've got to plan. I'm an engineer as well. That's what you do. So if I shot an elk, how am I going to bring it home? This thing's massive. So you have to bring the antlers home and then potentially get the skin um, tanned and then brought back later. Or just do the whole mount there and freight the container, which is going to be really expensive. I got a quote, I think, to ship my whitetail back and they wanted um, something in the order of $2,000. So I can only imagine... What, a, what an elk would cost to bring back home to Australia. Yeah, I think there's some clever people out there that break break it all down, you know, and and um, do things to it so that you can piece it back together like a puzzle. Yeah. You know, the points can go back on and whatever. Uh, when I bought the – well, I didn't bring the red deer back from New Zealand. Um, it stayed over there when my uncle came to visit. He brought it. And while it was over there, um, but you know, between shooting it and getting it back to Australia, I was researching how to get it back. And the, um, the the freighters that specialise in bringing trophies back, it, it, just to get it from New Zealand to here was going to be a couple of thousand bucks. Yeah. Um, but there was no reason why I couldn't bring it on as as uh, a second bag, right? Uh, and we found this out later. No one told us this, but we found this out later. We just created a. I've got it sitting out here. I can see it. A, a, a light plywood with um, steel steel um, sides on it, and we just basically knew what the dimensions of a bag could be at their maximum and this thing was within one centimeter of width and height to to be classified as a second bag so it cost 10 bucks or 15 bucks the new zealand and new caledonia because i brought heads back from new caledonia you can bring the the uh, from new caledonia at the time this was you could bring untanned hides back from new caledonia. yeah you used to be able to bring green hide back because you can't yeah. anymore oh you can't uh, no you can't anymore australia stopped it um, but you can bring up to 10 kilos of fresh meat as long as it's gone through the process at a butcher to put it into vac seal bags, have it stamped 
for what it is Not and bad. then you can bring that back yeah so you don't have to leave all the meat over there but green hides became harder uh, but certainly bringing the heads back, as long as it's cleaned out. I've got a, a, a skull sitting up here. Well, not a skull, but the, the red head sitting up here behind me. Yeah. It's still pink. The skull is pink. Apparently, I'm colorblind. I can't see it. It looks white to me. Um, but it got dipped in whatever solution Customs wanted to dip it in when it got to Australia and gave it a pink tinge, which I've never dealt with. Uh, yeah. But I don't care. It's part of its story, right? Yeah, because yeah, I got I still got one Munt Jack skull in the UK. And I'm... I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah a little so, I, so I got two, and I gave one to one uh, to an, a nephew, and he he just loves it. And um, so I'm thinking I'm gonna finally get the other one sent over because so I thought we'd be over there uh, again soon, but it doesn't look like it's happening. So I'm gonna but, get it wrapped yeah, up, yeah. And stuck in the mail. I tell you what, hunting this hunting is um, just linked, like even just meeting Ian and some of the people that I've met over in the in United States and. New Caledonia's just made, made some lifelong friends. You meet some really good people and um, been lucky to have a common medium to talk about and do things with people. So um, it's been great. Yeah, it's good, eh? Yeah. Right. It, it is. It, it, it's, and it's interesting, you know, Ian kind of alluded to it before, you've got to actually tell people and it's surprising, you know, because you go, oh, people, you know, might get a bit judgy. But it's, a, it's actually surprising how many people aren't. They kind of go, yeah, okay. Well, I I know someone, or they're 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 themselves they're interested. Um, recently, my you know my brother contacted me. Well, I was talking to my brother about stuff, and the, and his his son is interested in going hunting. So I might be that uncle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How awesome is that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I might be that. You know, that you hear the story. Oh, my uncle got me in. Well, I might be that uncle. Yeah. So you know, so that's. You know, I think that only comes about from actually t talking to people about it, and then actually, and you know, and having having a, a worthwhile story to tell. I mean, you know, some people tell silly, gruesome stories, but you know, having an, an adventure story, I think, you know, really is interesting to people. Here, you know, you saying you went hunting for deer, but you know, you, you were bailed up by wolves and things like that. That's yeah. that's a story. You know, that's, I think, I think that's something that, worth to tell. You know, it's the adventure more than the actual killing. It's Most the challenge. That's what I can't bring it down to, but um, putting yourself in that position too. So, like you know, you were going, you know, hunting mule deer, but to do that, you had to do all these things. Yeah, do that, and those yeah. things are far more interesting in a, in a lot of the ways. You know, you know, having to you know pull camp because of the weather, and you yeah. know. So I've got some video of uh, of the Idaho hunt, which was pretty pretty awesome. Huh. Um, so I haven't had a time, haven't had time to put it together yet, but I will. Um, and even the Colorado hunt, the Colorado hunt, I didn't have as much because I didn't see as much animals. But you can still kind of get a feel for the camp, and get a feel for the country, um, and get you know just a few of the characters and that. So um, I'll put something together and I'll share it on your page Ian, later on. So yeah, that'd be great. It'd be, yeah, it'd, it it'd be, be good to see it. Really, would be good to see it. Um, you so got then, on, haven't got anything with the turkeys. That's what I'm nah, uh, yeah. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> about to ask up. that. <laughs> I'd love to see that, man. I, that is so. That looks so cool. So, so the elk, I just didn't want to break the law because I was flying home. Yeah. And if I had done something, it's actually a big, big crime over there to, to shoot on someone else's land. I'm, oh, sure, I'm assuming it'd still be pretty serious in Australia, but over yeah, there, yeah. they don't muck around, especially. No, I think more serious. More yeah, serious. Yeah. Well, well, more serious over there. So it wasn't. I wasn't playing with that, especially being an Aussie. 
on an army posting over there. Can you imagine the story? Oh, yeah. But I was like, no, nah, I'm not, I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it to, to my wife, my kids, or for my job. So um, I was like, no. Nah. So that was the elk. The the turkey, that was just a missed opportunity. I, sure. I, I, I I'm, I'm just I'm just ribbing you. I definitely <laughs> want to go back and get a turkey though. That's on the bucket list. But mm, the tricky fun. thing with the turkey is it's in it's in uh, April, March April I think yeah. March, yeah, April, where the deer season's in November, late November. So that's a that's a that's a spring. Yeah, spring turkey. You can hunt them in fall as well, but the spring turkey's where they're active, and you can gobble them and call them in. And that. Okay, I'm going to do some research and find out what the New Zealand turkey hunting is all about. I'm sure it's completely different, Mark, but um, I've got Mate, friends I've, that have I've them on their it, land. What I've seen, it's yeah, literally, I've, I've, there's a video of this guy just. Sneak it. They're asleep on a fence. He literally works up and whacks them on there with a stick. Yeah, but I mean, if you say, yeah, and then they just go eat it, and they go, well, yeah. I mean, if you're going to eat it, yeah, but I mean, it's not like, yeah, it's like turkey hunting. A, you know, there's this massive, you know, commitment to calling and the gear and the in the whole lot, you know, and they, they might get it, you know, and they, they put hours and hours and hours, hours days in and they get a turkey. And the yeah, version despite... comes with a baseball bat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> turkey, in you go. In the truck. Go uh, home. Well the they're the same they are the same bird. Yeah, well, if, uh, is it the same? Is it, what no, I believe it, I believe they did you know, I'm pretty sure it's the same yeah. bird. Yeah, yeah. Ian, it's like it's six different. species of turkey that they hunt in America. That's called the Grand yeah. Slam. That's so, right. Oh, yeah. Oh, so well, they're at, they are a type of turkey that you would associate with the US. I'm not sure which particular I'm, one, or if, or even if East. if they have different, they have different. I know because you know there's the ones down in Florida and Osceola. it's Osceola, yeah, Osceola and things like that. Yeah, so. I don't know which one they have particularly because I, 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 to be honest, I couldn't tell the difference between them. But I have seen that they have, to, you know, what you would call an American wild turkey That's in the same. US. There was, there's been a couple of um, people who've released them up here in Queensland too. Oh, because I was going to say there, there isn't a, the boys were all asking me, can we come and hunt turkeys in Australia? And I said, I think we have one. I looked it up and they go, what is yeah, that? Yeah, scrub turkey. Nah, it's a scrub turkey, <laughs> man. It's a wholly, wholly different animal. Well, and, say it's like well, rare and endangered. Well, they're like, they'd complete their grand slam and they'd be super excited. My dog would I don't, I don't, I don't even think it. I don't even think a scrub turkey is a turkey. It's like one of those things, you know, it's like the, you know, the salmon that you catch off the beach oh, down there. Yeah. yeah, that's not a salmon. It's just that that's what they called it, you know. So, so I know the turkey on King Island. They have a, they have a flock out on King Island in Victoria. Yeah. Uh, in Australia. Well, like you know, there is there is pheasant flocks around the place. Uh, I mean, around here, there's um, someone's got guinea fowl around here. So you know, every so often you drive past, you see guinea fowl. But I think they and I mean, there's a guy. There is a property um, in the Mary Valley. There's a hunting property in the Mary Valley, and they have black buck. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Because I was up there once on a camping trip and we were driving and we left camp very early the next day to go to the next camp and we were driving along and I looked on this hill and I went, what's, hang on. <laughs> and I had to get the binoculars out. Oh, the black buck on that. Wow. I took a photo of it. I got a photo of it. I went, that's something you don't see every day up in the, uh, behind Kandanga. But, you know, there it is. It's a black buck. So they're about... But I, I think what you're talking about is completely different. But yeah, um, I, I just love watching that turkey hunting. It just seems so intense. Yeah. 
you know, the way that, and they're, they're, they're using a fairly heavy line, the shotguns too, aren't they? They're not mucking yeah, around. They're not they're, mucking they're, around. Chokes, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's not, they seem to be heavy loads, yeah, and they're, and they're getting them they close because when you hit. see them hit, they hit, yeah, they, they really, use this federal, federal premium TSS load, is what they're using. Yeah, well, Winchester Longbeard is the other one that they use. Yeah, that's it. Uh, I've been watching so the, uh, the most, the most commonly seen species in New Zealand is the Miriam, Miriam, yep. Texas, yep. Texas, eh? Merriam turkey and New Zealand's wild turkey hunting experience is one you will not forget. <laughs> Doesn't sound like a mark, does it? <laughs> so it's actually, it's actually so it is actually a hunt. You think? Yeah, there's a hunt. There's very little known about the wild turkey population in the country except they were first introduced or escaped. They're not really sure in yeah. six in 1860. Um, there was another one. Um, uh, I've lost the page now, but there is another species that's that's farmed that seems to have got away. But they're well established now in rough farming country. That could be worth a crack on the way over to oh, Tar. If they, them, if they hunt them like they do in the airs, I'd I'd I'd, I'd go do that. Why but not? if they're just like going all day up, you can imagine, you know, like you'd you'd ring the outfitter in New Zealand, someone in New Zealand, oh yeah, mate, we do exactly that, and that, they'd get all their mates around and they'd watch it dressing up and putting war paint on, and like they'd be cacking themselves at what's going on if there. Like that, I'd be interested. But if they're just basically got a two to triple two in there, and there it is, there, there you go, dead bird. Yeah, I'm not sure I'm going to be that interested. Uh, well, well, we'll do some more research because that's far closer and it could be fun. It looks like uh, it. I tell you, it looks like great fun. <laughs> right, fast like forward. Fun. But you're a bird man. You love your birds. Yeah, kind of. Um, but I, I unfortunately don't do it much in Australia. But I, I certainly wing wing shooting and 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 hunting birds is is fantastic fun. Once we've sampled hair, Mark's gonna have a crack at pigeon. Pigeon. Wow. I, I don't. I don't need a crack. I've eaten already. I don't need to have a Australian, crack. Australian pigeon. Pigeon's a pigeon, mate. Uh, uh, we're gonna we're gonna cook it up here, and everyone can see it. There you go. Watch out! Watch it! Watch the space for Mark's pigeon recipe. Uh, um, I want to see the hair first. Uh, well, that's happening. I, I've got the twenty-two out. It's um it's ready to go. Once we're finished here, I'll go put it over the paddock, and we'll, I'll smack four or five, stick them in the fridge, and we'll see how we go. Perfect. Right, that's my hunting adventures. What happened after elk? Uh, so after elk, I came home. That was it. Oh, no, I had a bit of bow hunting for for whitetail, yep. but um, yeah, just nothing presented. I watched ten points and eight points walk out on other people's stands, and uh, I was on the other side of the field. So they so they hunt a lot of crop in Kentucky, so uh, they've got a lot of pasture out there. So they run um, mainly corn, and then after the corn goes, a bit of a process. I'm no farmer, so I'm talking out of out of line here. But they run corn first, then they cut the corn, then they put beans down. Then after the beans go down, they put uh, winter wheat down and they cut that. So they're running this this pasture with something on it all the time. But mm. um, the deer sort of live. They have bush block in between all this pasture. Um, the deer sort of live in there and come out to feed on these on these um, on these crops. And the tree stands are set up on the edge of fields or in little thoroughfares. They set the tree stands up. Um, I only hunted in the ladder stand because I'm a big girl. But the guys have. Um, little climbing sticks and uh, um, another thing called a climber that they put on a tree and they, they winch themselves up on. Um, I only went up in a fixed stand. So I had 
three points of attachment at all times. You're a bit high to wear, are you? Yeah, just a bit high to wear. And I'm a big man. I don't want to fall. <laughs> big tree fall hard. So yeah, <laughs> I stuck with that. But uh, that sort of limited where I could go to, whereas they would observe the deer and move their little climbing stand to wherever they thought they would go. So Sounds uh, like Spot and Stalk successful. was more successful anyway. Sorry? Spot and Stalk was more successful for you anyway. For me anyway, yeah. But and I, it, it, it is definitely a, a good way to hunt. Like I've op it's opened my mind up to it because initially it was like, well, this is boring. But you do actually get to observe and see the deer in their natural habitat, not being pushed or pressed by, by a human. So, um, and once you know where the deer are moving, you kind of pattern them and you can put a tree stand and you can just sit and wait for them. Yeah, I'm, I'm half considering it. One, one of the guys in our in our branch, um, our ADA branch, uh, had, had a small block uh, where he was chasing fellow. And yeah. for a year, I think he had a tree stand up. And for a year, he was sitting in that tree stand um, and he would see animals come and go or he'd see them on his trail cam. And he put a lot of effort into oh. being able to hunt this really small block that yeah. the animals were passing through and he collected all the evidence and he put himself and he was up really early and traveling to see it. Um, and he didn't get it in year one, but in year two he did, but not from the stand. Eventually he saw it in the distance and stalked and shot it, but he, I think he saw it from the stand. Yeah. Um, and it was a great story. I think there'll be, funnily enough, uh, there'll be a write-up about it in the next Australian Deer Association magazine. Yeah. Um, so it'd be worth having a look at that. But, but um, um yeah, the it's a different different way to hunt it. Yeah, and I've got this little little red block that I've got trail yeah. cams on at the moment, and I'm noticing that there's this beautiful amphitheater, and I set my camera up facing out into this amphitheater that comes down and to the sort of the top of it's probably only 50 meters yeah. all the way around to the top of this thing, this big basin. Uh, it'd be a great spot to put a tree stand, oh. and I'm, I'm sort of thinking about it because that's where I see all the activity. So I've seen stags there. I've seen little stags there. I've seen lots of hinds and, and, you know, yearlings. And yeah, I think, yeah, it's, it's worth a thought. If I could so the main, myself a nice, you know, quiet way to get in there in the dark, it'd be a good one. That's, that's the biggest thing. So I was just going to say, so the mm. main, these guys that, that I was hunting with, they hunt bow hunt. And so it's total scent control. Oh yeah. Um, total, um, uh, control of your impact on getting in and out of the stand. You've got to really think about how you get in, how you get out, and um, obviously your scent control. That's they're the biggest things. Um, if you can master that, then the tree stand will work for you. Mm. Yeah, like it, it does happen like that, and I think that's. I've been hunting a small block now for nearly a year in the Brisbane Valley, and you know the deer because it's a smaller block, it, it funnels them, and which is good in a way because you pretty much know where you're going to see them but the thing is the approach is everything because if you blow that approach then that's it you've they're gone so you only really get one chance on them and they're, they're, and it, it's that you know that not only thinking about the hunt but actually getting into position to hunt and doing that in such a way that you don't you know you don't blow the hunt even before you start is is something that I've become much more aware of Whereas on a big property, you kind of just start and you go, okay, now I'm picking up sign, I'm some, you know, and you move towards it. But when with that property, you've got to be right straight away. You've got to yeah. be, you know, and it's even like to the point where I pull up 
before I get to the property and kind of get ready, then drive that little bit to the point where I'm ready, you know, because you could more than once I've pulled up and the deer just gone, stood up and gone, oh, let's cut him and gone. So it's it that criticality of getting in position. That's what you notice with those guys who hunt tree stands. You know, it's they know where that stand is. They're not just kind of exploring. They're going, okay, and they've got to work their way towards it to get in position even before they even think of starting about hunting. Mm. It's an amazing thing to see. It's just something completely different. Yeah. Uh, it's it's you know it's the the size kind of comp- it's it compresses the game but it also compresses your I suppose it it's a compression of the mistakes you can make and how they can amplify because it's so small so yeah, something something's going to see you that's right something's yeah. going to hear you or see you if you're not on 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 yeah. your game straight away yeah happened to me a couple of times <laughs> yeah well it's happened to me on this block a lot because you kind of the deer are, Generally below your eye line, yeah. And, you know, you literally, oh, there they are. They're, they're, you know, they snuck in behind bang. me. Yeah, there it are. Yeah. Eye Do you line. did you find that it gave you an advantage? Uh, was it necessary because of the type of block you were on? Did it give you an advantage, or was it just the way they do it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Hundred percent. Like I think it definitely gave you an advantage. If, if you're with a bow, it gives you advantage. With a rifle, you, you can shoot plenty of deer, right? But with a bow, 100% gives you advantage because you're close and you um, you can get in and see them moving around undisturbed. But with a rifle, you can sit at the gate and shoot them. You know, you know what I mean as they come out. Like it's it makes the challenge of hunting totally different, especially out there on pasture, pasture and fringe blocks. You can see the deer come out. You know where they're going to come out. You know where they're bedded. It just depends on what side's the wind blowing or where they're going to go. You can shoot them with a rifle. But to get them to cross past you where with a, in reach of a bow, um, that's challenging. Mm. So, And then you've got to pull it all together with your bow because you've got to draw that bow without them seeing you and you've got to seal the deal when you let it go. So, And they can hit, They sometimes can hear the shot. depends on how yeah. fast your bow is. Uh, there's all sorts of stuff that can go wrong. For sure. And there's lots of bow tuning and bow dampening but, and mm. things that you can do to minimise that. But it's yeah, I've always wondered whether it was – was it just a cultural, not so much cultural, but you know, it's just the way things have been done for such a long time. Whether, or, or because spot and stalk is not a normal thing for them in no. in, in whitetail, especially in those sorts of little blocks. But yeah, it's um it's fun to watch. Did you um ever hunt muzzleloader? No, I did not. It is a thing. I didn't do it. Yeah. I didn't do it. It's a big yeah. thing, but I don't do it. I didn't yeah, because I mean, a lot of the muzzleloaders now are. It's questionable if you know they're a muzzle loader, but they're not People much of shooting a shooting at 150 yards plus. They're not really, yeah. They're 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 technically, I suppose, they're a muzzle loader, but they're almost they're just a slow load single shot because they're using those. Um, you know, it's actually the cartridge is is pre pre assembled and all that stuff. So you watch yeah. them, yeah. I've been watching a lot of the muzzle loader, and they actually uh, must be somewhere we, when they class their shotgun, they're using that new Ruger um, 450 Bushmaster. Okay. They're classing that. That somehow is coming in as as class as the shotgun because my mate runs one of those things, and they're 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 basically they're a 150 meter cannon. Basically, they're a yeah. huge. But um yeah they it must because they're actually shooting with that that rifle that he has, but it must qualify within that 
in that 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 bracket as as yeah. as, a, as a shotgun or something like that. There's a lot right. of good gear gets shot in muzzleload season because it's still yeah. very quiet. But once yeah. rifle is it starts the deer kind of just get smart very quickly. Yeah. Mm. And, and and watching the shotgun season when they're they're firing solids and stuff like that. Yeah. So yeah. It's an interesting, interesting approach how you can, you know, you see these guys, you know, they've got, okay, you know, so they've, I'm bow this week and next week, I'm next week and next week. Yeah, next week. The whole it's, it's, that's it. That's it. They, they just want to hunt all the time. So they, they've become proficient across yeah. all these disciplines Correct. because they want, to, they want to keep hunting. And pretty much another thing that they do a lot over there is leasing. They, they lease a lot of land. Mm. So similar to Queensland, they'll have a farmer that they're teared up with and they'll lease that property. Yeah. Four or five guys that lease that farm and they all pay their dues and then they hunt that farm and they've got yeah. access to hunt that farm because mm. it's so tied up and so hard to get access over there that the 99% of the farms there are leased. Yeah. In the UK, they just they call that a syndicate. It's no, the same, yeah. same thing, yeah. You know, you 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 uh, or it could be forest, it could be a, a, a chunk of private forest, yeah. but yeah, you basically join a syndicate and you've got so you've got access to this area for, for a fee, yeah. And yeah. so, they do have a lot of public land hunting there too, though, which is good, which sure. is what, what, what I was talking about all in the west. But down if you come down to the east coast because of the population and it's all built up and a lot of farms, they don't there isn't a lot, there isn't as much public land hunting. Mm. Yeah. There's these there's these guys uh, on YouTube who do this public land hunting, but they hunt within city limits. Have you seen those guys? Is it Hush Crew or I can't remember what they're called, but they they basically hunt within. Technically, they hunt public land, but it might be an acre. Oh yeah, yeah. it might be. It's just just a little tiny block in a, in a pub, you know, in a fairly built up area, and they hunt this thing, and 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 often, you know. It's signed like no hunting or no access, but they go see the game warden. The game warden says, "No, that's someone's put that sign up. That's not a real sign. You know, <laughs> you can go there. Here it is, and you know, and they'll go in. I was watching them. They were they, they were bow hunting, so they're going in by boat and bow hunting um, whitetail, but the boundary line was like 70, 80 meters away. Yeah. So they were going. We've got to get this shot." Just right, you know, because this deer could technically you can't run, yeah. It could technically run out of out of out of public land. So it was it was really quite interesting the way they were going about it. Far out. Yeah. So Juan, what's what's next? You've you've done all this. You've landed back in Melbourne. You you've yeah. got a young family. You, yeah. you must be gagging to get out hunting again. Yeah, but what so, what's on the hit list next? What what's on? So, the... But yeah, hoping to get out hunting maybe in April. Um, start getting back out again. Um. But yeah, just finding time is going to be hard now, I think, and finding free weekends when, you know, the wife and the kids are busy doing something so you can get out for a hunt. It's going to be tough. Or or the other option is you do, like, a big hunt. You plan a week away, like, like what you guys have got planned in, later in the year, and you just tear that up for a week and then come back and yeah. back to home duty. So it's kind of like that balance. Do you get out every now and again or you do one big hunt? So it's, it's the fine balance now because I've done a lot of hunting while I was away in America, so now it's kind of like maybe pump the brakes a little bit and sort of just realign myself before I get back into it. So, but um, but yeah, looking forward to going back to New Cal, doing New Zealand, and just chasing samba here at the bar. I still haven't shot a decent samba in Victoria. Um, I've only shot a small twenty incher, um, so I'm keen to try and shoot a nice a nice big representative stag. And I've seen some, but I haven't been lucky enough to 
sealed with tough. the tough. Yeah, mm. they're tough. But yeah, that's the plan, I guess, for the next two. Years. I've got I've got two years in Melbourne, so I'm looking forward to enjoying the most most of it. So good stuff. All right. Well, let us know when you're ready. We're uh, we're up and down the country shortly. Um, we got we got ruts and roars and samba trips planned. So um, no doubt we'll bump into you somewhere and you can yeah. come and uh, meet the crew again that you've you haven't seen for some time. So that'd be really be great. Good. Be great. Yeah. Other than that, mate, I just want to say thanks. It's been a it's been a great chat. Um, you've done a lot of cool stuff overseas that a lot of us can only dream of doing. So, um, good on you for sharing. And um, yeah, hopefully we'll uh, we'll have you come back on after you've got back out in the bush, and um, we'll see what the next adventure is. Awesome, Mark. Thanks, Ian, and thanks, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Mate, it's, it's been great talking to you. No worries. Good stuff, mate. Thanks, eh? See you, buddy. Bye. Yeah.